You may take special note of Jesus' prayer and attention paid to our sanctification, our being sanctified, and its relationship to being glorified. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, and thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it. 
that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. We read that far. And now we turn also to our text found in Ephesians 5. And our text this morning is really, well, we'll read the last part of 25, but it's verses 26 and 27. 26 and 27. We read in 25, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blame or without blemish. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as promised, we now consider these words of Ephesians 5 in connection with holy baptism, because that is what these verses refer to. This is a very, very significant text about our relationship to Jesus Christ, and unfortunately one that is often overlooked because this text is in the middle of a passage that sets forth the calling of the husband and wife, one to another in Christian marriage, and more specifically to the husband with regard to his wife, his calling to love her. And so often less attention is given to the reason why Christ gives himself to the church. This text teaches that reason, and it deserves attention in its own right. About the text, this text is further proof that the main theme of the book of Ephesians is what we have said it to be, namely, the glory of the church. That's literally what we read, that Jesus does something, he gives himself, and he sanctifies the church, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church. We found the theme of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 3, which says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And we had said that those blessings are really the glory of the church. Not only does this text confirm that the main theme of this book is the glory of the church, but it sets forth what the main glory of the church is. There are, of course, many blessings, as chapter 1, verse 3 makes clear. There are the blessings of salvation that also belong to the glory of the church. Namely, that the church is, as we have seen, elected into Christ, is redeemed by Christ, is adopted unto Christ, is made alive in Christ. But here, the glory of the church is specifically given as one thing, making clear 
that all those other things serve this one main purpose, which therefore is also the main glory of the church, namely the sanctification of the church. That is the church's glory, and that's what the Lord sets forth also in John chapter 17. I am glorified in them. And how is he glorified? In them through the sanctification of the church that he prays for in John 17. This text is all about the work of sanctification, Christ's work sanctifying the church. We may, on the basis of this passage, define sanctification as the work of Christ cleansing the church so that she who is filthy is made clean, so that she who is wrinkled is and blemished and spotted is made pristine and perfect and pure. And this text sets forth that that sanctifying of the church is the work of Christ. That is the work of Christ alone. The church cannot sanctify herself. She cannot sanctify herself no more than the dead can make himself alive, the rotten can make itself good, or the whorish fornicating woman can make herself a virgin fit for her husband. Even more significant is that this text makes plain that this is the main purpose for Christ in giving Himself to the church. That is, giving Himself in death to the church. That's literally what we read. He gave Himself so that He might sanctify the church. This locates the work of Christ in the cross of Jesus Christ, in His death on the cross. And that's different than how we often view the death of Christ. Also locates significantly the sanctifying work of Christ, of His bride, of His wife, in baptism. Again, quite different than how we often view baptism, mainly from the perspective of the forgiveness of sins. But baptism significantly also is a power of renewal, that is, sanctification. Finally, the text teaches that sanctification is the work of Christ so that He presents the church unto Himself holy and glorious. Consider with me Christ's sanctifying of His church, that it is a complete sanctification, a sanctifying completely. Secondly, that it is a sanctifying by water. And lastly, that it is a sanctifying to Himself. The work of Christ, the significant and important work of Christ spoken of here in the text is as necessary for Christ to perform in and on the church as is His work of forgiving the sins of the church. In fact, it is the very 
work of Christ, forgiving the sins of the church, that both implies and requires Christ's work, sanctifying the church. The sanctifying of the church by Christ is a work of Christ that concerns sin. The sin, indeed, that is forgiven by Christ. The sins for which Christ gave his life on the cross. And all the references in the text, therefore, refer to sin. The cleansing with water is a cleansing of sin. The spots and the wrinkles and the blemishes are the sins of the members of the church and indeed the church herself that she has committed against God and against her neighbor. It makes clear that by those sins, the members of the church and the church itself has made herself vile, has made herself filthy and polluted before God so that she must be cleaned, she must be made whole. It makes clear that the church and its members are not by themselves and in themselves pristine or perfect or pure before God, but rather spotted and wrinkled, impure and rotten. This is, therefore, one great blessing of the death and the giving of himself to the church by Jesus Christ. We know that another is indeed justification, or what is awful referred to in this book, his work of redemption, or his work of forgiving the sins of the church. We read of that earlier in chapter 1, verse 7, that among the blessings given to the church that are her glory is that in him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read that the result of this is that we have peace with God and each other through him, that in his flesh is abolished the enmity, even the law of commandments, making in himself of two one new man, that is, one church, and making peace. That's one thing Jesus is referring to in his prayer of John 17, and something that we have seen in the book of Ephesians. This is the great benefit, justification, the forgiveness of our sins that we do often most associate with baptism, and rightly so. Water represents the blood of Jesus Christ shed by his death, by which shedding of his death he satisfied the perfect justice of the offended God against our sin, so that all punishment that we deserve for our sin is paid in full, and even that all obedience that God demands, all obedience to His divine law, even perfect obedience, is satisfied. Satisfied as if we ourselves 
had perfectly obeyed the commandments of God. That's a great, great benefit of the death and giving of Himself in death of Jesus Christ that is signified by baptism. We read that in the form. But it is by no means the only benefit, and in the light of the text, not even the main benefit that is the ultimate or goal benefit of the giving of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's necessary, of course, justification is, the forgiveness of sins is, because without it we cannot have peace with God. That is, we cannot have a relationship with God. We cannot be incorporated into Him. We have no hope of eternal life. We stand before Him condemned. We stand before Him unrighteous. It is indeed a basic and essential benefit of the cross of Christ, namely justification. In fact, we may say that we cannot even be sanctified without it, for it serves as the legal basis for everything else. By that death, Jesus redeems us. That is, He purchases us. He buys us so that we belong to Him. And by the shedding of that blood, the righteousness of God is satisfied forever. But the profound teaching of this passage is that the purpose of the death of Christ is to sanctify us. There is not even a mention of justification. That's what the text literally says. He gave Himself, that is, gave Himself in death, gave Himself in all that He did, that He might present us, that He might sanctify and cleanse us. And this is not the only passage. We read in John chapter 17, verse 19, For their sakes I sanctify Myself. And if you ask when did Christ sanctify Himself, the answer is in His death. There He cleansed Himself. He cleansed Himself of all the filth and all the dirt and all the blemishes and all the wrinkles of sin, namely our sin, that He had taken upon Himself. And sanctifying Himself, Jesus says, that He did that, that He might sanctify us, that they may be sanctified through the truth. Same Word of God is given in the book of Titus chapter 2. He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity. There's justification. And purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. There's sanctification. Both located in the cross. Our text, however, mentions only one. And that might surprise us. That might surprise us as being listed as the only purpose of Jesus Christ in His death and giving. Not even justification. That Jesus gave Himself and gave Himself to death on the cross, not for forgiveness of our sins, 
but the cleansing of our sins. Not to give us peace with God, but purity, body and soul. That He gave Himself not for salvation from the punishment of sin, but gave Himself for deliverance or salvation from the power of sin. This was the view of Jesus Himself. In John 17, the entire focus of that passage is upon Jesus soon giving Himself unto death with a view to the sanctification of the church. And that's the view of the Apostle Paul in Titus and here in this passage. And why? And the answer is because it is the ultimate purpose. It is the goal. It is the end of all Christ's work as is confirmed when in the passage we read it results in Jesus presenting the church to Himself glorious. His work finished and done. This should make sense to us if we look at this work of Christ in its context, namely the marriage of Christ and the church. This should make sense if we realize that by her sins, what the church is and the church has become. By her sins, the church that Christ must marry, the church that Christ is given to marry, is dead. Is dead in trespasses, in sins. Dead body and soul. Christ who is alive cannot marry a dead woman. He cannot live in a loving relationship of submission to Him if she is dead. Nor can that woman live in a relationship of loving submission to her Lord and head if she's dead. By her sins, she has made herself unholy. That is, her heart and her life is not consecrated in loving service to God, but her heart and her life are consecrated in loving service to sin, to sinners, to the world, to the ungodly, and to ungodliness. In order to live in loving service to her husband, her heart must be changed. Her life must be changed so that it is dedicated and consecrated to God. That's sanctification. By her sin, she has made herself filthy and wrinkled and spotted. And the idea is that by that filth, by those wrinkles and by those spots, she has made herself disgusting, vile, unwanted, unlovely. Those words there do not minimize the necessity of sanctification. Some look at it that way and say, well, it's just a spot and it's just a wrinkle and a little blemish there. Certainly Christ can live with that. But that is not the case, especially if you consider two things. Number one, the purity and the holiness of Christ Himself who must marry this bride. He is too pure 
and too perfect as to take unto himself that which is spotted and wrinkled and defiled and filthy. And that's even the emphasis of the text when it says that Christ sanctifies us so that he might present us to himself. This must be done for Christ's sake, for who and what he is, the only pure and holy one. But consider even yourselves. Consider yourselves with regard to even physical things, physical things that you purchase or even that you marry. Take this out of the spiritual realm, put it in the physical realm. Who pays anything for bruised fruit? Who buys rotten fruit? Who would buy a whole pile of wrinkled clothes? Who would purchase such a thing? And who wants to marry a woman who has defiled herself by giving herself to all kinds of other men? And that's her life. No. The church must be sanctified by Christ. So I repeat what this work of sanctification actually is in the light of the text. It is the saving work of Jesus Christ taking His filthy, polluted, wrinkled, spotted, blemished church and cleansing her from the power and filth of sin so that she is made a new woman, pristine, a virgin, unspotted and unwrinkled in sin, becomes one who submits to Him in loving service, obeying His will and His commandments with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you will notice in that definition, as is the emphasis of the text, is on the completeness, that is the entirety of that sanctification, its extent, its extent, that is definitely the emphasis. Notice the repeated words that all essentially refer to the same thing. Sanctification, making holy, cleaning, removing spots, ironing out wrinkles, taking away blemishes. And then take note of all the words that are added. No spot, no wrinkle, without blemish, or any such thing. So as regards that completeness, how do we view it? Well, number one, it is complete with regard to the world, with regard to our place in the world, with regard to sin and sinners. Sanctification is the work taking us from our unholy consecration and loving service of sin and sinners in the world exclusively to consecration to Himself and God. It is sanctification that is the source and power of what we call the antithesis, the complete spiritual separation from the world in which the church lives, the world in which the church must live, as is even placed, 
Notice that was the emphasis in John chapter 17. I'm not going to take them out of the world, but sanctify them so they are separate. They are individual, spiritually. They are consecrated no longer to the world, no longer part of the world, no longer belong to the world. They are something different, entirely different, even from heaven itself. Number two, with regard to this completeness, it is a sanctification of every single member of the church and the entire church itself. That is, that is a sanctification of babies as well as adults, of males as well as females, husbands and wives and their children. It's one of the things mentioned in the baptism form itself. Those words that apply to why an infant must be baptized are in the light of one of the great signs of baptism, namely sanctification, that even infants Christ sanctifies through baptism. Why infants, therefore, must be baptized to deny Infant baptism is to deny Christ's work sanctifying His church completely, that is, even infants. Number three, the sanctification is complete with regard to ourselves personally. It is a sanctification of all the powerful motions and actions of sin in every single faculty of the soul and every single member of our body. Notice the correlation there to the church. No member of our body or soul is left unsanctified. It is a sanctification that is a cleansing both inward and outward. It is a cleansing of our hands so that we do not do sin. It is a cleansing of our feet, so that we do not walk in sin. It is a cleansing of our eyes, so we do not behold sin. A cleansing of our mouth, so we do not speak sin. A cleansing of our ears, so we do not listen to sin. And it is a cleansing inwardly of our soul. A cleansing of our mind, so that we do not think in sin. A cleansing of our heart, that is, our will, so that we do not desire and love sin. Even a cleansing of our emotions, so that we hate and despise sin rather than find it fun and enjoyable. We mourn over sin and rejoice in God rather than the other way around. Then also, this is a complete sanctification with regard to the commandments themselves. As the Heidelberg Catechism itself make plain, it's a sanctification such that we do not obey just one or two commandments, but all the commandments of God. That we love all the commandments of God. That we submit entirely to the will of God found in Holy Scripture. And then there is the sanctifying of us in time and eternity. It is complete with regard to the very first moment in which we are incorporated into Christ. This is a sanctification that begins in us. 
When we are joined and united to Jesus Christ, it is a sanctification both in this life and a future life. Now if you ask yourself, how can that sanctification be so complete now and offer as proof your own particular life, I would agree and say we need an explanation there. But leaving that aside for a moment, please take note why the text connects this work of Christ with His coming. When in His coming we are married to Him and this sanctification is complete, that is completed with regard to all of it in the church and every member, indicating that there is a process to this work. And that the perfection spoken of, the purity mentioned here, is something that one cannot and will not see until glory, the glory of Jesus' return. But at the same time, one may not say we are not sanctified. Even our baptism form pointed that out. That water of baptism is a sign that that child is sanctified. That child is dedicated, consecrated entirely, body and soul, with nothing left out of it, to Jesus Christ, to God in Jesus Christ. And with regard to the sanctification, that is why the Scriptures also must make clear elsewhere that what it consists of in this life is that sin has no dominion over us. It is the work of Christ taking us so that we who were dead to sin or dead in sin become dead to sin. So that sin no more has the power to drag us down to hell, to rule and dominate our life, our soul, our mind, and our will. Which is why both Christ and the baptism form recognize that this life of sanctification involves a tremendous battle in the life of the child of God. Involves taking up cross, manfully fighting against sin. But that's sanctification. Now how has it worked? How does Christ accomplish this work? And the answer is by water. More specifically, by the washing of water by the Word. He actually says, with the washing of water by the Word, making clear that there is two agents by which Christ affects this work that work in conjunction. And Christ also makes plain here that it is His work alone. That should be evident, should it not? That sanctification would involve a transformation of my will and my life so that my hands and feet and my mouth and eyes do not do certain things and do other things so that there is activity in my heart that actually trusts and loves Jesus Christ, as the baptism form makes clear, 
is nevertheless not my work. It is the work of Christ. And yet the Bible says I do good work. So how do we explain these things? Well, first of all, notice that you couldn't work that yourself. You couldn't do that. Can you make yourself alive? Even once alive, can you remove the bruise from a fruit? Can you make that which is wrinkled and dirty pristine? If you say, oh yes, I do that with clothes all the time, consider these stains and these wrinkles. These are the kind of wrinkles, namely that of sin, that are permanent. These are the stains that cannot be removed by any earthly physical agent at our disposal. Beside that, we don't have the will. We don't have the desire. It is the work of Christ alone. The powerful stain, the filth, the wrinkles are too great for us to remove. The corrupting power of sin is too extensive. Even if one could imagine that for a moment he could briefly remove from his mind and his heart sin, remove that as an actual power in his mind, it just comes right back. That's why our creeds refer to sin as an ever-flowing fountain. We are perverse in our entire flesh. Notice that's the emphasis of the text again. Twice it says that he might do such things. It points out, number one, that it requires a power we do not have. And something must happen first that we cannot do. That he must give himself. He must die even for such things to be begun, to be affected. That's why you cannot have sanctification without justification. And if one imagines that he can sanctify himself, he can no more sanctify himself than he can justify himself. It cannot be done. It's an impossibility. Beside, it's for his purpose and for his sake that he might present it to himself. Our sin, the sins that we are to be sanctified of, the sins that we can't sanctify ourselves with regard to, are our absolute devotion to ourselves and not God. Now you can no more sanctify yourself than you can justify yourself. Which is why the Scriptures teach that not only is justification by faith alone, but so is sanctification. You are sanctified by faith alone. Just like justification. One is sanctified through faith. That is, through knowing and trusting in something. Namely, Christ. And namely, that it is the work of Christ. Why, anyone who wants to simply take resolves that he's going to do this or that with regard to his life, without faith, without absolute trust, that Christ alone sanctifies him, is bound to failure is doomed to failure. Christ uses an agent, and this agent makes clear it's by Him too. Water with water by the Word. 
Now briefly, for time's sake, the reference here is to baptism. And we must see quite clearly, I hope, that it's not referring to the physical water of baptism, to the sign itself, but rather that the water is a sign and seal of a reality. And that reality is the blood of Jesus Christ. So what the text is saying is that Christ gives Himself by shedding His blood, and He gave Himself shedding His blood so that He might sanctify the church by that blood, with that blood. That's the agent. Blood must be applied to sin. Blood must scrub that sin away. Blood, the blood of Christ, must course through that individual and its members. And only that can cleanse, clean, make holy, consecrate, and sanctify the child of God. And that's done by the Word. Wished I had time this morning to read all the references that are found in our creeds and Scripture as to how this exactly works. But we read that this morning. Go back, please, and read the baptism form. How all these things are connected in baptism. It is a sign of our incorporation into Christ. And therefore, our incorporation into His death and His resurrection. And therefore, baptism isn't simply a sign and seal of our initiation into our beginning in a relationship with Christ are incorporating us into Him, but also then also the forgiveness of sins. We are baptized into His death, and therefore the benefits of His death become ours. And what are those benefits? Our creeds are at pains to explain that there's two. Always two. I'll read just the Heidelberg Catechism. Christ has appointed the external washing with water, adding thereto this promise. Notice this promise is the Word. The water and the Word work together. That I am as certainly washed by His blood and Spirit from all the pollution of my soul. It is from all my sins as I am washed externally with water by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. What is it to be washed by the blood and Spirit of Christ? Notice, blood and Spirit. That's essentially the same thing as by the water and by the Word. What is it? It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood. Justification. Which was shed for us by His sacrifice upon the cross. And also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ. That so we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. You see, when baptism, when the application of the blood of Jesus Christ incorporates you into Him, then you died with Him. You were buried with Him. The old man of sin is crucified and put to death. That sanctification 
And we are incorporated into His resurrection. Newness of life. Renewal is the word. A cleansing goes on. That's what was signified this morning. Water was applied to an infant. And that water represented the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross to sanctify that child. It was a sign and seal of God saying, that child's mine. He don't belong to Brett and Caitlin. He belongs to me. The child is mine. I bought him. He paid for his sins. It's a sign and seal of Christ sanctifying, consecrating, devoting not only himself to the child, but the child now unto him. It's what it is for us. By faith, of course. If you want to know how the Word works, well, that's what's being preached to you. That's the word we read in the form. Baptism always works in connection with that word, never separated from that word. For it's the word that comes along and says, this is what it means. Here's Christ. See Christ. Hear what He did. Presents Christ. Sets Him there for us. And then calls us to believe. and Believe in Him. Not just for the forgiveness of sins, but in His sanctifying power. Now, What's the purpose of all that? That's not even the end purpose. Why does Christ sanctify the church? For our sakes? No, not really. For his sake. That he might present it to himself. A glorious church. There it is. Sanctification is what makes the church glorious. So glorious that Christ is going to present the church. He indeed is going to show all the world the church. He's going to show the church off like the loving husband he is and do so as his work. This is precisely what Jesus meant when in John 17 he says, I am glorified in them. Think about that. That is an amazing thing. That Christ is so tied to the church by what he has done and what he did that he has not even glorified himself apart from us. What he prays for is the sanctification of the church, that the church might be glorified and that he would be glorified in the church. Why? Because it's his work. Obviously very precious to him. You think good works aren't important? You think living a holy life is not important? You think that you can live in sin Repeated sin, vileness, and filth, and it has no bearing on Christ, brings no shame to his name, doesn't dirty who he is. Guess again. This is his greatest work. This is the work that justification even serves. That he might take that which is dead and make it alive, that which is filthy and clean it, that which is bruised and make it pristine. He takes a whorish, fornicating woman, the church. He makes her a virgin again. Who can do that? It's a reminder too, beloved, of the power of sanctification and the word by which he accomplishes it. It's not just a word of do's and don'ts. Don't do this and do that. And it's certainly not this, as we often can find by our foolishness, by our pride, become addicted to to this or that sin, becomes so in its power. And we may be 
resolved in our heart that we're, we're not going to live and drink and alcohol and pornography any longer. We're resolved to do that and we find ourselves failing and failing again. What's the problem? We think sanctification is just a don't. That we don't do certain things. No, when Jesus says that he presents the church to himself, what he's saying is his work of sanctification is his work causing the church to love him and give herself to him. Sanctification is that a man just doesn't put off his sin, put away his sin, set it aside, but he gives himself. And she gives herself wholly and entirely unto him. That's part of that sanctifying work. And why would you do that? Well, here's where the Word comes in. The Word presents him. It says this is who he is. This is what he's done. This is his work. You see, it's his love. It's his giving himself. It's his sanctifying work that causes the very submission of his wife unto him. Remember that, men. No, you can't sanctify your wife the way Christ can. But you indeed can sanctify her in this sense, that you can give yourself to her by bringing her to Christ, by living with her in obedience to Christ, by showing her, first of all, that you love Christ more than anything else and then love her next. You can be certain that just like Christ's work, work, it will have an influence and be a power in her by faith. Why? Because of Christ's work sanctifying His church. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for taking us to Thyself. And we long for that day when Thy sanctification is perfected and complete. That which we know now, that we are wholly dedicated unto Thee, consecrated unto Thee, we are Thine. We belong to Thee. Our sins have been forgiven. We are righteous in Jesus Christ. And we find, we find that we are able to love Thee and serve Thee, which we couldn't do. We find, O Lord, that sin has not the dominion over us that it had when we were dead in trespasses and sins in our entirety. We give Thee thanks, O Lord, for this Thy work. But we long for its perfection. And will she see the glory of this work in us and our children and in all the church and give praise and honor to Thee forever and ever. Amen. Turn to Psalter number 239.